1996, Bill Gates said, content is king. And boy was he right. Three decades later, it still occupies the throne. For lawyers, law firms, and companies serving the legal industry, content marketing and thought leadership marketing are must if they want to build their books of business or increase their revenues. Hi, I'm Wayne Pollock. I'm a former AmLaw 50 senior associate who discovered the world of content marketing and thought leadership marketing and hasn't looked back. In each episode of this podcast, I interview lawyers and legal industry in-house marketers who are doing big things with their content marketing and thought leadership marketing. This is Legally Contented. Welcome to episode 56 of Legally Contented. I'm your host, Wayne Pollock. There's a reason why vanilla ice cream is one of the top flavors in survey after survey of people and their favorite ice cream flavors. It's because it's inoffensive. It's nice. It's not terrible. But when you've got the choice of vanilla versus 27 other flavors, you're probably going to go with one of the other flavors. But if it's just vanilla and nothing else, eh, you'll probably go with vanilla. That might be why so many lawyers are willing to stick with vanilla marketing. They know that when everyone else has vanilla marketing, when every other lawyer has vanilla marketing, then their vanilla marketing doesn't seem as bad. My guest in this episode, Jordan Ostroff, creates content that is not vanilla. Jordan is the owner of Driven Law, a small plaintiff's firm in Orlando, Florida, and is also the founder of Legalese Marketing, which is a marketing company for small and boutique law firms. Jordan, in my view, does a fantastic job of being himself, of having this authentic voice when he is talking through his content, whether it's written, whether it is audio, whether it's video. He stands out from the crowd, and I wanted to talk to him about authenticity and about being yourself and injecting your voice into your content. Now, I know authenticity is a cliche these days, and there's just so much about authenticity that It just makes your skin crawl sometimes. But in this conversation, we really get into being your authentic selves and having a personality, making dad jokes, making sports references that hopefully connect with your clients and referral sources in a way that helps your marketing while also making you feel comfortable doing the marketing because you are being yourself and you are not playing any other role as you market yourself, your practice, your firm, what have you. Enjoy my conversation with Jordan. Jordan Ostroff, welcome to Legally Contented. Please introduce yourself to our audience. Wayne, thanks so much for having me. Uh, To everybody watching and listening, so I'm Jordan Ostroff. I run a PI firm in Orlando. Used to be Jordan Law. We have become Driven Law as of uh, the beginning of April. And then I've got a marketing company, Legal Ease Marketing, where I help uh, law firms across the country market their firm in a way that helps them stand out among the crowd. And uh, I think that's what we're going to talk about today from the standpoint of being less an asshole and more approachable. So it's rare that we have breaking branding news on this podcast, but we are fresh off a rebrand. So congratulations. I'm sure that was a smooth process that came in under budget earlier than planned and created no gray hairs whatsoever. Well, so having a marketing company, we were definitely under budget with the rebrand. Um, Google, I love you, Google, but your info on creating new domains and what to do is completely outdated versus what you want people to do. Uh, but you know, we got it to work. Great. Jordan, I asked you to join me because I think you do a phenomenal job of injecting your own voice 
into your content, whether it's your podcast, your videos, your email newsletters, whatever content you are publishing, which is, by the way, I think more than the average bear, more, much more than the average lawyer and average law firm. But you do such a great job. And I want to explore that because I see that so rarely, whether it's business-to-business lawyers or even direct-to-consumer lawyers, the criminal attorneys, the PI attorneys who are normally talking to the kind of general consumer. I don't see it as often. So I want to explore that and hear your thoughts about how you got to where you are in terms of being so comfortable using informal language, talking to other people like they are, wait a second, people, and how you got there. But let's start with your legal background because you're a glutton for punishment as if running one business wasn't enough. You decided to launch a second business and market to lawyers and work with lawyers as that second business. So Talk to me about your path out of law school to the formerly Jordan Law, and then your path from Jordan Law to legalese marketing. Sure. So uh, I'll even go a little bit further. I knew I wanted to be a lawyer as long as I can remember, having not a single idea what that truly meant. Uh, at some point, I realized you were arguing with people and trying to prove you were right, which all of my home videos are completely me. So I am sorry, mom and dad. Uh, and I gave you a grandkid who does it to me as well. So it's, you know. Turnabout is fair play, I guess. Um, so yeah, I, I became a prosecutor and at one point decided, hey, I don't want to work for $40,000 a year sending people to prison for life on these super serious cases. Let me switch over to opening up my own firm. So my wife and I opened up a firm. She was a PD. I was a prosecutor. We started out doing criminal defense and a little bit of family law until we realized how terrible family law was. Um, and now here we are as a PI firm seven years later, still very happily married, eight years later. Uh, still very happily married with a kid, etc. So the business is intact. The marriage is intact. That in and of itself is worthy of combinations and recognition. That that could be the next podcast, how to be a business <laughs> partner with your wife and still like each other. Like forget the love part, but also still like each other. What's the size of the firm now in terms of attorneys and staff? Uh, so right now we have four full-time employees. Um, and then we've got a couple people from the marketing company that have the law firm as a major client. So not terribly large, but super focused on what I actually want or what we actually want when it comes to the firm. That's such a great point And something that not everyone realizes when they run a business, you don't have to make it this large sprawling enterprise just because you've heard other lawyers or other business owners do the same thing. If a three attorney, seven staff person law firm works for you, or if a 30 attorney, 200 person, staff person, law firm works for you, great. But don't feel like you have to create something that is larger than you need it to be just because you thought or you were told or you heard that growth for growth's sake is, is the holy grail. Yeah, we were, uh, we were a five or six lawyer, 15 to 17 person firm. I actually bring in more revenue now and certainly profit more at four. Um, it's just, it, it's, you gotta have a plan. You gotta know what you want and you gotta know what you want to do. You want to know what problem you need to know what problems you actually want to solve. And for me, management was not a problem. I want to solve was not a problem. My wife wanted to solve was not a problem that anybody currently on our staff wanted to solve. And so we're in a point where we are small enough to not need a mid-level of management, which is awesome. Which is a great example, right? If you want to be three layers removed from the clients and you want to not be involved in day to day, then build a large law firm or build a firm that can handle and can afford middle management. <laughs> but if you don't want that, then don't 
right? There's no rule saying you have to. Absolutely. How'd you learn how to build and run a law firm? Cliches abound about what they didn't teach you in law school. And then you get out and you go to work for the government and not necessarily known as an entrepreneurial office or one that is thinking about teaching you how to build your book of business, build your brand, build your presence. So how in the world did you learn how to run a law firm? I made, I don't want to say every mistake, but almost every mistake. <clears throat> and I learned from them. I mean, that like at the end of the day, we, so I came up to Orlando to go to University of Central Florida. I stayed here for Barry for law school. I was a prosecutor here in Orlando. So by the time I launched, I had like 10 years of connections with lawyers ahead of me, judges, et cetera. And so like I had three to $400,000 in referral business, having no idea what to do for that, having no idea what to do with that. And I was like, oh, I'll hire some marketing companies. And then, you know, we'll be a seven figure firm. Next thing you know, uh, next thing you know, we were a larger firm, but I was working 70 hours a week. We were $200,000 in debt that we didn't have from the firm, we were miserable. And then my wife told me she was pregnant with our kid, who's now five. So it was about, I guess, uh, about six years ago now. And that's when we really had to go back and not start over, but figure out what we were going to keep and what we were going to cut. And that's what really helped me figure out my business is just knowing what I wanted to continue to do and what we wanted to cut out, like a lot of people, like a lot of areas of practice, like a lot of, um, you know, management needs, that kind of stuff. So did you crunch the numbers and look at what the revenue was for each of these groups? Was that something that you hadn't done before, but you were forced to based on the way the world found you at that time? You know, I wish I could tell you, yes. What I will say is instead of crunching the numbers, I really went into my feelings and looked at like, who are the clients we actually enjoy? Um, and I not not on a individual client by client basis, but like as an overall, you know, like I really liked a lot of my criminal defense clients, but I hated shaking them down for money. Well, so how could I work with a similar type of person without them needing to be able to pay me, which were our PI cases, which were our PI clients, which were that, you know, my wife enjoys practicing law. She likes being an attorney. She likes, so she's the managing partner. She wanted to do PI. She likes the lifestyle that it affords us from a financial perspective, but also from a travel perspective. And so that meant cutting everything where we were going to have to be emergency, you know, running into court the next day or in a couple hours on notice. So really looking at it that way made the commitment. And then thankfully, at some point, you know, my accountant or my financial advisor or somebody helped me through the number part to say that I wasn't totally crazy. But for me, it was it started with feelings. It started with wants. That's something that I don't think many people realize that there comes a point in your business where if you're going to be working as hard as you are in your business for the revenue you're generating, you're going to be in it for 80 hours or 60 hours or 40 hours a week. You better like what you're doing. And it stinks in the beginning when you're trying to ramp up and get the bills paid and bring in enough revenue. But there hopefully for you comes a point where you say, you know what? I don't want to do criminal defense anymore. I don't want to do X. I don't want to do Y. And the ability, talk about freedom and autonomy, the ability to walk away from what might have been a profitable enterprise or portion of your company, but if it didn't give you joy and happiness, then why the hell would you keep on doing that? The whole point of entrepreneurship and running your own business is to design something that works for you and your family and fits with the vision you have for your life. And so many people just slog through miserable clients, miserable practice areas, and they don't realize that it takes some time and maybe a little bit of luck, but you can cut off 
those nasty parts that you don't want to deal with. Totally. And I mean, and I'll take it a step farther because also you need to start by creating the job that you actually want inside of the business that you want. You know, like I always, I say this, I, I use this example. If you could come up with your ideal day, you probably wouldn't be at work. If you can come up with your ideal week, you probably still wouldn't do much work. If you come up with your ideal month, I hope that in that time frame there is something that you enjoy doing. That's the stuff that you want to focus on. If that's, you know, going to trial and kicking ass in front of a jury for a couple of days, great. Then you focus on being a lawyer. If that's marketing and networking and golfing with your best buddies and, and going out for dinner, great. Then you become a marketer and you hire attorneys. If that's, you know, reading business books and making some great vision decisions, great. Then you hire marketers and you hire lawyers and you vision the business. Like really think about what job you want at this company that you're building and focus on that, you know, a hundred percent or 99%, you know, whatever you can. So you mentioned that you had referrals to start with, or you, or soon after launching, you had referrals to start with. Why then bring on the media company or the marketing company that didn't go as well for you? And what about that relationship didn't go well? So man, that's a, there's, <laughs> there's a lot of therapy to unpack in there. No, I mean, look at, at the, the easy answer is I thought I needed to. I thought that was the right step. I thought you get enough cases in the door and then you hire a marketing company to fill in the digital side and whatnot from there. Um, why didn't it work? I mean, look, I'll be honest. It was my fault, not just on who I hired, but like I didn't have a sales process. I didn't know who my ideal client was. I didn't have any of the foundational stuff figured out. I just wanted more. You know, I wanted more money, but that became more different cases that became having to hire more people that became having more problems. Um, and, and, you know, my biggest complaint about any of the companies I hired was none of them cared about that answer, you know? And so now with our marketing company, we have completely changed the organization of how we bring clients on solely based upon my experience. And which is cool. Cause then it puts me like, I am an ideal client for my marketing company. I am a terrible ideal client for my law firm. Like I would be an awful PI client. I don't want to go to doctors. I don't want to go to treatment, but from a marketing company standpoint, I think about like, what's the right amount of friction that I want? What's the right amount of buy-in I want on marketing? What's the right amount of communication I want? Um, and we push towards that. And so, you know, we end up working with a hundred clients across the, the, uh, I guess I'm going to say globe, but you know, 95% in the United States, a couple in Canada, a couple in Britain who are basically like me. And, and that's fun. You know, that's not terrifying. Did the experience with the marketing vendor cause you to do everything in house from that point forward? Or did you re re-engage someone else or another marketing vendor for the law firm? So that's a great question. Um, so I had an in-house director of marketing until he went to go work with his wife at her firm. Um, so we had some of the stuff in-house, but ultimately like my current business partner for legalese now guy, Greg Eisenberg, he and I like weirdly ran in the same circles. Like I won UCF 30 under 30 one year. He won the next year. Um, he, my wife was in this bipartisan political organization called Tiger Bay. He was the executive director. Like we just had so many people who knew both of us in common. And so finally I was like, Hey man, can I pay you? Can I pick your brain? Like, I don't understand why 15 different other companies, strategies, and whatever hasn't worked. Like it's, you know, at some point I have to be the asshole. Um, and so he asked me like the marketing 101 questions, what kind of cases do you want? What sort of clients do you want to work with? And it was just mind blowing to me at the time. And it was funny because like the best, 
you know, I, to me, I, the most eye-opening things are the things that I can figure out why they were right in retrospect. So like we, you know, I, I spoke at UCF. I talked to a lot of fraternities about how to avoid being arrested. Those were the clients I loved. Those were the cases I loved. That was the only thing that I had the extra thought process of what group makes sense, what organization makes sense, what problem makes sense, as opposed to all the digital stuff where I was like, hey, here's five grand, you know, get me DUI leads. Okay, here's, you know, 10 grand, but sell me these leads. Hey, here's seven grand, redo my website, like all this stupid stuff that never had that one extra step of what's going to come from this or what do I want to come from this? It's amazing that I often hear about sometimes the X factor is that ground game, almost literally pounding the pavement and especially in smaller communities where you can be known as the attorney, whether you can handle everything or you refer out a lot of those cases. But by having that ground game where you are meeting people, having seminars, you're sponsoring the backpack fundraisers or the Thanksgiving day, turkey giveaways, whatever it is, the bike giveaways, the helmet giveaways. But like even in 2023, those ground games still work and arguably they stand out because everyone else is dumping money into Google ads, LSAs, Facebook ads, social media marketing, SEO. And sometimes people still shockingly have lives outside of a computer, outside of their phone. Yes. And you, the more you knit, like the less budget you have, the less time, money, energy, whatever you want to call it, the more you have to niche, you know, maybe it's you're focused at one church, maybe you're focused on one county, maybe you're focused on one fraternity at one school. Um, but the flip side of that is like, I don't think it's doing that stuff or having a digital strategy. I think it's both because imagine when you did talk to that person two years ago when they were in some organization and then they went online and your name came up again and they recognized your picture how is that person not going to at least do the consultation with you? You know, like having those multiple points of connection, how are they at least not going to give you the shot for this to be your case, even if that might technically be a Google lead, but really they only clicked on you because you did the presentation, because you helped their friend, because, you know, what, whatever that was that they were aware of you before. So we heard kind of the origin story for legalese and what drove you. Some people go to therapy, you just decide to launch a marketing company yeah. that satisfies your needs. That's basically totally, totally understandable. Does legalese today, is that the firm that you envisioned building when you said to yourself, you know what? I think I have an idea for what a law firm marketing company should look like. Um, no, but it's, it is the business that it has needed to be to maximize the experience for ourselves and our clients. Like I thought, honestly, we are not, I don't want to say we are not a marketing company. We are not a marketing company first because the first thing that we're doing is building out a CRM to have some sort of sales process, which also tracks all the marketing efforts and having that in place, then we can be a marketing company knowing how effective each ad is, knowing that we're maximizing close rates, that kind of stuff. So if I set out to build a marketing agency, I wouldn't be doing the things that make us unique and more effective. Instead, we took what worked for me and started with that and then looked at how am I different from our clients? Um, you know, a lot of them are not as crazy. A lot of them are way more grounded. They have, they're not willing to die or learn from any experience like I am. And so we've had to kind of, you know, reel some of it back, have more meetings, give a little bit more info uh, because most people are not as willing to delegate as, as extensively as I am, which 
is a is a pro and a con depending upon the day. So you know there is there is no right answer to a lot of these things, and so it's been interesting to see the um, the growth of legalese coming from a very core feeling into tweaking the execution of those feelings. Well, and obviously the now driven law is a professional services firm as is legalese. They serve different audiences. They do different things, but were there lessons that you took from building the now driven law that helped you build legalese? You know, it's yes. Part of it is how similar every business is to every other business. And part of it is being surprised by how different one professional service business is from another, you know, and really, I think it goes back to the client. You know, and I think that's what when we when we talk about you know my persona, I'm always going to keep throwing it back to the client. Um, I'll do it in a slightly different way for that. But like, if you're dealing with B two B people that are savvier, that are more interested in you know a long term relationship, that works one way. If you are more B two C people who you know just want a terrible situation in life handled quickly, there are things that they care about differently. There are things that they care about more. There are things they care about less. And really, I think like the the more Every business that deals with the same person, I think, does things more similar than these businesses that offer the same service to very different people. So let's get into that a little bit. Sure. One of the things that I, that I think you do so well is inject your personal voice into the content that you create. I see it, I think, through the legalese marketing component, that channel. Did you do that for your law firm? given that you were servicing clients that were not business to business, they were everyday people who probably didn't know much about the law. And normally that would allow you to take a more informal approach because you didn't want to dumb them down. You didn't want to overwork them or drown them in legal talk. Uh, To some extent, yes. And that that wasn't day one, but that was as early as I could make it. You know, like as early as I felt comfortable, the, the earlier I felt comfortable being me, the more I became me, the more successful that was with anybody. What did that take for you to get comfortable being you to clients, to referral sources? It took proof of concept, you know, and I say that like, look, I, I, I was nice. I was lucky enough to be able to share space from a well more established attorney than I. Um, I had had some cases against him and his firm when I was a prosecutor. We had a good relationship. He rented me some space and he threw me my first half a dozen cases. His thing was you need to be in the office and you need to be dressed and ready for court every day in the office because you never know when that client will walk in and want, you know, at 11 o'clock for a 1.30 hearing and you'll have to jump or when that client will want to talk to you. It's very much, if you ever watch Curb Your Enthusiasm, there's the episode Ed Astner is looking for the nonprofit firm and he goes in and the um, the producer from 30 Rock is the lawyer wearing jeans on a Friday. And he's like, you're not getting my business. No, no casual Fridays. And that was this thought process. And so it was great for the first couple weeks, couple months, whatever it was. But at some point I realized that all of the cases that I was getting not from him were coming from the people that I was grabbing lunch in a polo shirt and shorts with or had known for several years when we were in, you know, undergrad in our Phi Alpha Delta pre-law fraternity. And so I really looked at like, it's, you know, this is working for him. This is very successful for him. It's helping me, but it's not me. You know, I'm not the, I always, I mean, I'm, look, I'm wearing a Hawaiian shirt now for anybody not watching this. That's what I wear. Um, and I've got, you know, khaki pants and flip flops on. Like that's what I wear every day. And the more that I can be me, 
the more I can piss off the people that aren't going to like me anyway, but the more I'm going to stand out to the people that do vibe with me, like, like you, Wayne. I mean, I think that's why I'm here for being me. A couple points. One to your last point, sometimes the best marketing isn't about attracting the right people is about repelling the wrong people. And this comes out often with law firms because there's such a focus on intake and lead generation, but even from a branding perspective, like you can prevent people from not even picking up the phone, not even clicking the contact us tab or contact us page or button on your website by simply saying things that they don't identify with. But that's great because you might not want those clients. Yep. Yes. And it's, it is a hard thing to wrap your mind around when you are struggling. However, there comes that time where you realize the clients that you say no to or the clients you say no to you have a better impact on your firm than taking the clients that aren't the right fit. You know, they need to be called 700 more times. They drive your staff crazy. They file bar complaints, like whatever it is. And it will be over, you know, like, look, I want to, I want to be clear. There's two different things we're looking at here. There are things that are definitively right and definitively wrong. If you are doing something unethical, that is definitively wrong. But there are the clients that have a different expectation for things. You know, they want a higher touch, lower volume type firm. If you put yourself out there as that, but you're really not, you're setting the wrong expectation for them. They're going to get aggravated. And so when you have these things that are not black and white, you have to really commit to the shade of gray that is you. And therefore, you attract the people that want that shade of gray. Yeah, it's so well said. And in a way, the niche niching down is like the subtle way of doing this. Well, actually, our firm only handles birth injury cases. So we don't, we're not going to handle that slip and fall. We won't handle that car crash. And then you can become more aggressive like the father's rights or the mother's rights family law firms that make it very clear. We focus on one thing only. We are We will be staunch advocates for fathers. And sorry, moms, we're not going there. And that's just not, in our view, the right way to for us to bring on clients or to pursue our practice. So it's interesting how you could do that subtly or not so subtly. And another point you made- uh, Wait, hold on. Before you jump off of that, because I, yeah. I want to I take my hot take on that. I Please. actually think you're better off niching to a specific client than you are niching to a specific type of case. Like I would rather have you as a lawyer sit here and say, I only want to work with startups in the medical industry and I will do their, I will do their litigation and I will do their documents and I will do their estate plan. I'd rather you do that than say, I only want to do estate planning, but I'll do it for anybody because you're going to be able to use the right lingo. You're going to be able to show up in the right place. You're going to be able to get in front of those people and build better and better relationships. The more targeted you are on the person you work with as opposed to targeting on the type of case you want. Totally. And as someone who markets his thought leadership ghostwriting service as serving big law partners and partners at boutique law firms, I want to make it very clear who my target audience is. Now, if I have a senior associate with a budget from a not big law or a not boutique law firm, I'll talk to them. But from a marketing perspective, my target audience is a very specific type of client, a partner at a large law firm. And you can see this with law with law firms that market to certain people. And it's a great way to stand out, right? Like people think, gee, if I'm focused on one kind of client, then I'm going to run out, of, run out of content because I'm talking about one type of client. But the inverse is normally true, which is 
because you're so deep into their psyche, like you just mentioned, you know them hopefully so well, you can talk about all aspects of not just the legal issues, but like the periphery, the peripheral issues, their life, their mental health, their physical health. And you can just become that much more effective of a marketer because you are talking to them because you know them so well. You're not just an estate planner. You're an estate planner for young families with children under the age of five. Everything gets more fascinating the deeper you go with it. Like I still stand by, if you actually understand how a credit card works, it's the most fascinating thing in the entire world because there's like 35 different companies that have their fingers in a two second transaction. And for 0.000001% of it, they're making a billion dollars over time between this and this and this. Like, it's crazy to me. If you were trying to sell me a credit card processing company, I wouldn't necessarily dive that deep into it. But if you are a credit card processing company focused on this one part of the transaction, getting the you know exchange down, you can go deeper in that. And then I might find it interesting to go here and here. And like, it just the deeper that you can go with somebody, the more opportunity you have, as opposed to just being like, hey, marketing is telling who you want to get your stuff. No, like that's, that's super high level. That's chat GPT can pump that out in 15 minutes. I want you to dive deep into as a, you know, as an Amlaw junior partner with a budget of blah, blah, blah. These are the biggest things you need to be focused on, you know, for, for your clients. I think you can take a totally different take with them from like a tax standpoint. You know, how can we do some of these things to help them do the right tax avoidance you know, internal uh, entrepreneur tax strategy, because a lot of your clients are probably bringing in, you know, three, $400,000 a year or more, as opposed to if you're just focused on law firm owners, there's a, the majority of them are making 40 to $60,000 a year. There's a whole different component that they're not interested of where you can't share extra value with. Yeah. And to go back to something you said too, about the lawyer whose space that you rented, the way that he marketed or the way that he did good work and got referrals it's going to be different from the way that you saw was the right path forward for you. And because the legal industry is such a mentee mentor, whether it's formal or informal, explicit or subtle, there's such this idea like, well, gee, you know, I work closely with an attorney and he takes his clients out to go golfing and to ball games. And I hate golf and I don't want to go to a ball game. I'm screwed. But it's so easy to fall into the patterns that your mentor may have had. And I hope that people are able to see in this day and age that there's just so many alternatives to marketing yourself. That's not just what someone 20 years older than you has been doing because life was different. The world was different when they began their legal career. Listen, anybody listening to watching this, if you take nothing else away than what Wayne just said, absolutely. And, and I will, I want to empower anybody watching, listen to this. If you are doing things a different way, Maybe that's you look a certain way, you act a certain way that's different, you market in a certain way that's different. I want to empower you to have the moral imperative to tell more people about it so that we're not all sitting there like me, the idiot, eight years ago thinking that was the only way to get cases. Like the louder that we can all be about our thing, about our take, about our shtick, the more we can help people understand that they need to find their thing, their shtick, whatever it is that works for them. There's a million different ways to get cases and a million different ways will work for the right person, the right lawyer, the right client, the right, you know, moment, the right practice area. So please, please, please do not think that don't try to be me. Don't try to be Wayne, but don't try to be the person, you know, 20, 30 years older than us who did it the only way that they could find the one that makes the most sense for you um, and for your ideal client and 
tell everybody about it. Empower other people to do this. And the ethical rules, people always lean on the ethical rules as, oh, well, can't do it for ethical reasons. And a lot of times the ethics rules obviously give you the guardrails within which you can play in. And obviously some jurisdictions are different. Florida is notorious for being brutal. Same thing uh, with New Jersey, not so much in Pennsylvania, but New Jersey is pretty brutal as well. But the ethics rules often just give you the instructions for how to avoid doing things that are clearly unethical. There are so many, you know, there's, there are many wrong ways to do it, but there's a hell of a lot right ways, ethical ways to market yourself. Look at the rules, talk to people who are knowledgeable about it and don't rely on this like super safe, plain vanilla way that your mentor did it just because you think that's what the ethical rules require. They probably don't. You could probably have more leeway, but it's just so easy to lean back on that and say, ah, ethics rules, we have to be careful here. I, totally. It, it, it's a, uh, I mean, I want to say it's a cop-out, but there's somebody listening to this who's going to use a cop-out as a reason to do something unethical. Here's, here's what it boils down to for me. Like I, at the end of the day, if I had a sum of all this, I want you to be yourself loudly, be yourself at scale, be yourself as much as you can be. The funny part is the ethics pushback you get, but ultimately the most common, there's two reasons why lawyers are punished the most commonly more than anything else. You mess around with a trust account and oh my God, like I, I have not seen anybody who accidentally stole a bunch of money out of their trust account. The other one, what's the second most common reason that lawyers get punished? Uh, lack of contact with the client. Bingo. So if you are out there on social media and you have a client who's called your firm 15 times and hasn't gotten a call back and you're friends with them on Facebook or they're connected with the firm account and they make a comment on the firm account about how they haven't heard from you or they're still waiting on a response from so-and-so, you have given yourself one extra channel to communicate with clients. And I, the more that you are living your life out there, the harder it is to hide behind spending a million dollars on ads and being a terrible attorney, the higher it is, to, the harder it is to hide behind abandon, you know, half abandoning your cases and half assing them. Like there's so much of this that I think forces me to maybe not be a better lawyer, but run a better law firm um, while giving clients more opportunity to engage with us. You know, we host events, come in we, uh, next week. We, got a, we do a Cinco de Mayo event every year. So it'll be Quattro de Mayo this year because it's Thursday. We invited all of our clients, come on in, see us, have some free food, have some drinks, get home safely, have some fun, and actually get to meet the firm. Why? Because it'll give us great content for social media, because it will help a lot of those clients become referral sources, because we'll have a blast at it, because we will have so much fun doing that instead of spending, you know, five grand on Google ads to fight against Morgan and Morgan and a hundred other, you know, awesome gigantic firms. Like that's something that we can do differently that fits our culture better than anything else. As you started to find your groove with you being yourself loudly, you not hiding behind a suit, you rocking the Hawaiian shirt, the khaki shorts and the flip-flops, did you get pushback from the haters, either the clients or probably not surprisingly members of the bar? Totally. hundred percent. Yes, absolutely. There are people that have told me they would never hire me. There are people that have told me they would not refer me business. There are people that have said, you know, they, they don't think I carry myself the right way for our profession. Absolutely. Still happens to this day. And given the fact that you just rebranded your law firm, I'm assuming it is a living, breathing law firm that has clients still, that is still making revenue and paying bills. So I guess you didn't scare everyone away. Hey, bingo. I, look, <laughs> here, here's the, 
I will. Uh, there's 1.3, 1.4 million law fir- lawyers. Last time I saw it, there were like 400,000 law firms um, in the past. You can be vanilla. Like if, if Wayne, if you and I went out for ice cream and they only had vanilla, I think we'd be okay with it. But if we went to Baskin Robbins, I don't think either of us are ever going to order vanilla. And so if you are one of those 1.4 million lawyers that a million people think of second, when they think of a lawyer, you are the second one that they think of, you're going to get so many fewer cases than if there's 100 people that think of you first for anything legal related in any way, shape or form. And that's what I think everybody is so concerned about pissing off that one person that's never going to send them a case anyway, upsetting that one client that they're never going to want to work with anyway, and instead become vanilla and everyone's like, eh, I'm working with so-and-so's firm. It's okay. No, I want my clients to be like, I don't want to get into another car accident. But if I do, I know at least I'm going to have the best experience possible at Driven Law as I go through one of the worst times of my life and tell that to their friends and tell that to their family and come back if, God forbid, they get into a second accident because we really spoke to them. On that vanilla point, I always thought there was plain vanilla and French vanilla. I was at the grocery store last weekend and there's a Philadelphia vanilla that I don't know if that's just sucking up to Philadelphians since I'm in Philadelphia. I don't know what that is. It looked like briars, the old kind of briars with the white, with the little black specks, the vanilla bean, I'm assuming specks. I thought there was French and plain and now there's Philadelphia vanilla. So they actually just went to downtown Philly. They scraped dirt off the ground and threw it in the vanilla. That's, that's what those flecks are. It's smart branding. Like how the beer cans reflect the football teams during the season. Maybe they can just go around and create Orlando vanilla, Jacksonville vanilla. Great marketing. What about informality do you think makes it such an effective content philosophy, content pillar? So I'm going to slightly push back on you. I don't think informality by itself is helpful to anybody. I think that I am an informal person and therefore I can show up in the Hawaiian shirt and I can say the F word in a newsletter and I can post about me and my kid on a Wednesday going to SeaWorld, and that will attract the people that want an attorney who they could approach randomly in the supermarket instead of one that they need to sit on the other side of a desk for for $400 an hour. So I think it's, it's not necessarily that you have to commit to being informal. It's that you have to commit to your, being yourself and seeing how that plays out, how that conveys, and what sort of client that vibes with. So being the version of yourself and, and framing it in a way that is authentic, but also lets people know exactly who you are so that they can connect with you. Completely. I, look, here's, here's the thing. I, I'm assuming everybody listening to this has social media, whether you post or not. Think about the person that you know in real life that you see on social media the most and tell me what you remember about them. Is it their job? Because it's probably not. For the most part, it's the funny story that they shared from the holidays where they had the faux pas with their in-laws. It's the you know birthday gift they bought for their spouse. It's the pictures from their kid's graduation from whatever grade that they're in. Those are the things that you're going to remember the most when you talk to them. It's doing that with a little bit of the business stuff in there so that when they remember you and think of you, they think of the business as opposed to having to think about the business to think of you. Why in 2023 is this such a hard lesson for lawyers, 
to understand, including lawyers who are of a generation that grew up with social media or they were in their teenage years or their 20s when social media came out. Is it the fact that once senior attorneys and like the bureaucracy and infrastructure of a law firm get to them, they have to shed themselves, the real them at the door and assume this plain vanilla type figure, this personality, why, based on the attorneys that you know, that you see in the community, maybe some legalese clients, why? Why is this so difficult to understand authenticity when we are talking 2023 social media everywhere? I think it's different for everybody. You know, there are certainly the people that you talk about that have gone through the unofficial training program that turned them into the, the beige wall. Um, I think there's people that think it's too complicated, which trust me, listen, I, actually, let me back up for a second. I run a marketing company. I have a four person team that does my social media. We still don't do everything. I still want us to do more things. We still don't jump on trending audio for some things. We still don't get things out quickly enough. Like you need to just like, I, I'm not Gary V. I'm not a Grant Cardone. Like there's always going to be more that you can do. There's always going to be more platforms. There's going to be more posts. There's always going to be more production value. But if you do anything, it's going to be better than the nothing that you have been doing. Or if you do anything slightly more, it's going to be better than the slightly less that you've been doing. Um, I also think there's a lot of people that are afraid. Either they're afraid of people getting to know who they truly are, or they're afraid of the success that they might get if they were honest about themselves. Um, so, I, and, and I'm sure there's 400 other reasons. Like I am, I am willing to give everybody the rationalization that they're making to not do these things. Um, I just, I'd love to, if we can, if we through this conversation can convince one person to be themselves more openly, whether it's on social media, whether it's with referral sources, whether if it's in court in front of a jury, we will have succeeded. And if we can just keep focusing on that one more person convincing them that they can truly be a human, we will have a much better profession if we all do that together. What do you think is the path to becoming a bit more human, becoming a bit more authentic and finding your voice with your marketing and your business development and your networking? Should we go and do video? Should we test being authentic when we meet people in person? Like, What is like the starter's guide, beginner's guide to finding your voice and owning yourself when it comes to your marketing efforts? Great question. Here's how I would start. I would make a list of your all-time favorite clients. Hopefully you have like five or 10 clients that you loved working with. Look at how they found you. If 80% of those clients found you through the same channel, whether that was a referral source or the specific referral source, whether it was an organization that you're in, whether it was through Google ads, you're probably on the right track about what makes sense for you. Um, and then I'd look at what do they all have in common? You know, are they all in the same profession? Are they in the same job? Are they in the same county? Are they, you know, they have the same legal issue? I'd work off of that. Um, one, once you get through that thought process, then you'll have an idea of what possibilities there are. You know, if you're an estate planning lawyer dealing with people worth $10 million or more, I don't think you should run Google ads, but you could probably do longer videos. You can certainly do blog posts. You can certainly have the very nice you know, well-professionally written type stuff because those people are going to really want to be savvy and listen to who's doing the work as opposed to just competing on price. 
So once you have that person in mind, you have your different potential strategies up there, then I would flip it to what do you like doing? Do you like doing video? Do you like writing? Do you like going out for lunch with people? Do you like playing golf or, you know, going to sporting events and whatnot? That's what I would look at. Like, what's the Venn diagram overlap between what I think would get clients and what I actually enjoy and focus on that overlap in the middle. Once you get there, do you think that you could train colleagues or external ghostwriters to have your voice to come at the social media or the content with your voice? Because when I ghostwrite, most of the stuff that most of the content I'm writing, well, thousand word, 1500 word articles that are going to legal publications or publications that serve the clients that my clients have, these pieces of content don't really have a voice. They are professional. They're not law review articles. They're meant to be maybe business casual at best is the voice, right? It's not really a personal voice, but once you get into social media and you get onto Twitter or LinkedIn, and certainly when we're talking about video and podcast, that's a different thing here, but LinkedIn, Twitter, blog posts, do you, can you train up your internal staff to echo your voice? Or do you think you have to be the person to be creating the content? You know, that's a great question. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to lawyer sidestep your, your question. I, I mean, look, here's the thing. The future of AI is trying to get a better human soundingness or more uniqueness out of this. So a, as we sit here in, you know, April of 2023 with chat GPT 3.5 and four, if you're on the beta, ChatGPT 12 may be so much better at this. But ultimately, where I see the value of a really good copywriter is in nailing your voice on everything that comes out with your name attached to it. You know, if that voice is being super highly technical, professional, you know, bordering on a scholarly paper, great. But you better show up dressed to the nines everywhere and everything for all that stuff. If that voice is making you know, Star Wars and superhero references, great. Your copywriter should be somebody that has had a similar life experience as you to be able to have part of that with a little bit of tweak from you from there. You know, I think all of us are capable of like a 20% sway of who we are. It's when we try and go beyond that, that we have problems. And so like, look, if, you know, if, if I'm, when I'm hiring a copywriter, I'm looking for somebody who's 30 to 35. I'm, for me, for our clients, it's a totally different thing. But for me personally, I'm looking for somebody like that. I'm looking for somebody that has young kids. I'm looking for somebody who's happily married. I'm looking for, you know, like whatever it's going to be to be similar to me. Um, and then, you know, I'll, and then honestly, I might give them like, you have to watch these 10 movies. Like go watch Boondock Saints, go watch all the Star Wars movies again, go watch, you know, these superhero movies. Like, and then let's start making jokes from those things. Uh, which is funny because from the standpoint of our team of copywriters or, you know, from the standpoint of like whoever you're hiring, there are certainly lawyers that love having former lawyers write for them because they're doing B2B, because they're doing the hyper-technical stuff, because they're the, you know, legacy planning for estate stuff. Awesome. If that's you, then you need somebody like Wayne. You need somebody with that experience and background to be able to nail your voice being more professional. Um, that's what you're paying a copywriter for. So just some boondock saints knowledge right here. The first time I watched that movie was during a power hour in college at, okay. my, at my friend house. And I thought to myself, is this the movie we should be watching during this power hour? But I digress. It was an enjoyable movie, entertaining, not quite sure it fit the, the tone. 
And the, I uh, mean, if you do a shot every time they say the F word, you're not going to make it to 15 minutes into the movie. Yeah, I don't think we based our shots off of gunshots or expletives. I think we stayed away from that. But still, we lived to see another day. But yeah, it's my first time watching that movie. When we're talking about a more sophisticated audience, I use that in quotes, a more sophisticated audience, yeah. attorney to general counsel at large law firm or attorney to executive at corporation. Do you think that the attorneys can still present their full selves and still connect with their, with these people? Yes. Yes. You like the more that you are. So like, like here's, here's the benefit of digital media, social media, whatever you want to call it. You have more access to eyeballs than ever. So you can get in front of more people than ever before. And so like, this isn't, I guarantee you, there's the general counsel out there who also wants to make the same dad joke puns that you do. I promise you. And that person's going to resonate with you. Now, maybe if that was me, I would be writing some longer blog articles. Maybe I would make sure I'm scholarly published. Maybe I would try to be speaking in front of the bar more frequently than I am. Um, you know, maybe I would do so, try to win some awards to like show that I actually know what I'm talking about from a, from a technical level. But heck yeah, be you. Because here's the thing, when you're trying to be, you know, lawyer you, so's 1.3 million other people who are trying to get their business. As opposed to dad you, which can connect with them on that level. As opposed to Miami Dolphins fan you, or, you know, Philly. My, uh, my business partner is a big Philly fan. So, you know, going through that stuff. All, every client we have spoken to who's from Philly who has talked to him, who has commiserated over the Eagles and the Sixers and everything else, they all hire and they're all great clients. And there's a ton of very inappropriate emails that get sent that I can't share directed at whomever ruined a Sunday or took out, you know, Embiid's knee or, you know, whatever it is. But it's a connection point. It's a genuine connection point. Like he truly lives and breathes that stuff. So do they. Like that's the thing is I'm not telling you to fake something. I'm telling you to be more honest and be more authentic than you've ever been and watch what happens to you. Yeah. And those relationships make the writing of the check or the sending of the ACH or the swiping of the card much more, it makes it easier, right? You have a relationship, you're building that relationship. It goes hand in hand. It is tough to avoid crossing streams in terms of business relationships that end up becoming a bit closer than business relationships. And that might make for awkward conversations down the road, but in the short time, in the short term, it, it makes the relationship so much better on both ends because you understand them, you have a relationship with them, you are bought in toward the same goal. I don't understand why you wouldn't want to build that kind of relationship. Dude, we're in a recession or we'll at some point say that it's a recession. Who do you think becomes the first budget item that gets cut? Is it the company that you enjoy talking to and working with? Or is it the tortured artist diva who does a great job, but is so complicated every time you need to engage them for something? That's the easiest one to pause for six more months until the economy picks back up or, you know, whatever it is. Um, and look, if you are the tortured artist diva, then great, commit to it. Like truly embrace that as I am only accessible for these times and my minimum retainer is $12 million and, you know, and really just focus on that. The problem is all these people that want to look like 
they are the super amazing go-to over here. But then when you meet them, want to hang out and be chummy and get beers. And then your gut's like, wait a minute, like this doesn't, you know, this doesn't click as opposed to being like, Hey, work hard, play hard. Let's have fun. And let's do great work in court. Now you have an authenticness. Now you have a consistency among all of this. And you don't give other people that gut feeling of like, what's wrong here. Sometimes you just have to get a sense of what your client is looking for in terms of relationship. Many of them don't want to go on vacation with you and your family. They're not looking to be invited into your home. I was at a conference where there was a panel of general counsel from large law firms and oh, sorry, from large corporations. And one of the um, general counsel said that he's Persian, clearly Persian, no attorney he's ever worked with in two decades ever wished him a happy Persian holiday. And it was so striking. He's like, these people don't even try to get to know me. They want me to give them their business. They want to take me out for dinners, business dinners, but they don't even want to make comments about like very clear personal connections that they could build by simply opening their eyes and thinking about the bigger picture than just the legal work that we're doing. And it's, uh, to me, it's fun. Like getting to know other people, getting to know other interests, getting to know other cultures, like there's a amazingly fun component to it, but it goes back to, I like networking and I like talking to other people and I like being approachable. So if we're in the, you know, if we show up to a lawyer networking happy hour and you have 99% of the people wearing a suit and tie and you have me wearing shorts and a Hawaiian shirt, I'm attracting the person that's okay with me showing up like that. And that's what it is. And that's what it boils down to. Jordan, you've given out so much good guidance and insights. Normally, I would ask, as we wrap up here, what would be a key takeaway to give to the audience about the marketing and the building of a law firm? But because you kind of answered that throughout the conversation, I'd like to hear from you, what's one thing that you wish you knew before your Jordan Law slash driven law, driven law story or before entering or building legalese? What's one thing you wish you knew then that you knew now? about business, about marketing, about life, something to give our audience some food for thought. I'm going to give you the meta answer. Um, not knowing anything got me to where I am now. So I guess the one thing I'd want to know is how to enjoy the journey. You know, and I think that's like, we get so stuck up on these destinations of being a million dollar firm of making partner or whatever. And if you don't enjoy the journey, you get to the destination. You're like, okay, cool. Uh, what's next? You know? So really like enjoying the journey that you are on, whether whatever that is in life, that's the one thing I wish I knew then. Where can people go to find you on social media, on the web? Where do you want to send them? Sure. Hey, listen, if you're on any social media channel and you look for Jordan Ostrop, there's only two of us. Uh, the other one is a really good sales SVP in Boston. He gets a ton of job offers to my email. So like if you're his boss, dude needs a raise. Um, and then there's me. So the bearded lawyer marketer who makes dad jokes and share stuff with my kid and whatnot. And, and there we are. Um, otherwise, my email address is jordan at legaleasemarketing.com, E-A-S-E, because -E, even the company is a dad joke uh, in our name. And, uh, you know, here I am. Jordan, thank you for your time. Thanks for your insights. And we'll see you online. Wayne, thanks so much for having me. Well, that's a wrap for this episode of Legally Contented. Thanks so much for tuning in. Check out the episode show notes for more information about our guests and for links to resources that we discussed during the episode. We'd appreciate your feedback and recommendations for future guests. 
email us at hello at legallycontented.com, hello at legallycontented.com. We would appreciate if you told your colleagues about this podcast, if you subscribe to the podcast and urge them to subscribe as well. And while you're at it, maybe you could even rate and review the podcast on your favorite podcast player. Until next time, thanks so much for tuning in to Legally Contented.